Well, uh, I want to say how pleased I am to have you all here. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director director of the uh, Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And it's my great, great pleasure and honor to have as our guest today, Alex Castellanos. Um, those of you who are political junkies, and I assume most of the people in this room are, uh, he is a, you know, fix of heroin if there ever were. Uh, he, I met Alex originally when he was here at the Institute of Politics as a fellow, and he won many, many friends for, for his uh, erudition, his intelligence, his wit, and his kind of wonderful sense of irony, which is all incorporated in his analysis on CNN. Uh, I think that he has become one of the voices that people rely on for uh, not the obvious re wisdom. I mean, the conventional wisdom is one thing, and often Alex Castellanos is the, uh, is the first person to offer a thought that is not of that conventional wisdom, but which is uh, shrewd and insightful and incisive. He is originally from Havana. His family immigrated uh, after Fidel Castro took over, and uh, he has been a uh, a keen observer and participant in Republican politics, especially over the last number of years. But his inclinations are to be bipartisan. And his uh, uh, his new organization, what's it called? Purple Purple Strategies. PurpleStrategies.com. Purple Strategies is a is a is a political strategy uh, service and company that is intended to serve that bipartisan interest. In any event, uh, he comes to us in a very, very interesting moment. Uh, the first presidential debate is next week. Uh, the campaigns are in full throttle, and uh, there's some questions about you know, what is possible, what is not, uh, what is going to happen, what will not. Uh, I'm very, very glad to have Alex Castellanos here to tell us exactly what is going to happen and when it's going to happen, uh, which is going to be a great thing to know in advance. Alex Castellanos, welcome. Very well, glad to hear you. Thank you very much. Alex, what a generous and uh, entirely untrue uh, introduction. I greatly appreciate it. I, I hope someday to live up to it. Uh, it is so nice to be here with you. Um, the Harvard's been so generous to me. Uh, Four years ago when I first got here, I was a refugee from uh, the Romney campaign that had just lost then, and, uh, and you sheltered me here. You, you protected me from the McCain campaign. <laughs> so I, I am so grateful for that, and, uh, and no, I, I, uh, I renewed myself here, and I will always be in your debt for that. Um, and it's so nice to be back here among the 47%. As, uh, as Mitt Romney calls you. I think, I think the Romney strategy these past couple of weeks of lowering expectations for the first debate is really working. He's got it right where he wants it. Um, and that's, um, you know, we, we do have some interesting moments coming up. Whoever thought we'd see a year like this. I've been doing politics now since I was, I don't know, I guess about 20 years old. And uh, uh, I guess this year will be declared, 
you know, a national holiday year for late night talk show hosts and pundits because there's just a, there's no end of amusement here. I think we're going to chat for 10, 15 minutes a little bit. I'll, I'll throw a few thoughts out about the election and, and why I think this is such a big election and why perversely we're having such small campaigns. Uh, at this important moment. And then uh, questions. Talk Sounds a little good. bit. And, uh, you know, this is a big year. Um, we, um, of course, every, well, say every election is a critical time, critical moment. But the world is changing with such a fierce velocity uh, like we've never seen. And let me draw you a map of this election. Okay, this is going to be an air map. I'm graphically impaired. So I have to follow along here. So watch this. Here we go. Everybody see that? What was that? Bell curve. Bell curve. We got a bell curve. That's the map of this election. This country has always thought itself going up that bell curve. This country always thought itself ascendant. We always thought tomorrow would be better than today, that our children would have it better than we've had it. No longer true. For the first time in modern memory, at least, since we've been measuring, we think our best days are, as Reagan noted, really might be behind us. We think that uh, we've lost something. And if you look, go back to our map, we're just over that hump. More Americans say that our children won't have it the same opportunities and the same prosperity that we have than, than otherwise. We think we're right over that hump. Now that means we've not declined. Americans do not think we have declined. But they're looking over the edge of, of the roller coaster and they see the decline. It scares the hell out of them. And that's where we are at this moment in history. And that is the dynamic that obtains in this election. Now in that environment, what do people want? Well, one case you can make to them is this is the new normal. Learn to live with it. I'll protect you in this new and uncertain world where you'll have less. But that's really not who this country, what this country has been. Our history has been that this is the land of endless promise and limitless frontiers. The guy who designed the Jeep Cherokee is a guy named Clotaire Rappel, a researcher. And he made the headlights on the Jeep Cherokee round, like the eyes of a horse. Because he said this is a land defined by frontiers. It's always on its way somewhere. So in that, if we're still that country, the other theory of the case is, no, this is not the new normal. We want the next bell curve. Take us to the better place. And when you think of where we are at this moment in history, that we're seeing the end of the industrial age as the defining uh, economic culture, and we're at the beginning of the communications age. We're at the end of something linear, Newtonian. We're at the end of, of managing our life like it's the plant floor. You know, we can give simple instructions and expect these certain you know, uh, results. That life is like a clock. 
you know, you just turn the cogs and gears and sort of things like that. And now we're in this strange networked world where things happen bottom up, where things self-organize. You know, we're, we're seeing the things that are working are more emergent structures, the Facebooks, the, well, maybe that's a poor example, but we're seeing a very different kind of social organization develop. So in this world, what's next? You would think that's what this election is about. You would think this election is about renewal. You would think this is about how do we take this country to a better place. There are two competing ideas on how to do that. I was with a friend uh, named David Axelrod the other day, who uh, is um, remarkably and amazingly wrong about nearly everything, um, <laughs> but is just a wonderful guy. And um, <clears throat> uh, funny story, we were, this was a while back now, we were at the Iowa caucuses, and I'm doing a hit for CNN, and all of a sudden this SUV pulls up, and out hops Dave, and says, uh, Alex, I gotta tell you, what just happened? I was on the other side of the building, and one of your people, you know, those Republicans came up and said, one of your people came up and, and said, sir, I just want to tell you that I see you on television all the time, you do a good job, make a very, you know, reasoned case, you fight for what you believe in, but, you know, you, you see both sides of things, and I just want to thank you for that. We need that. And David says, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. No, no, you don't have to thank me, Mr. Castellanos. <laughs> so, I think it's the mustache. <laughs> but David asked me not long ago, why did I think he was a liberal? Why did he believe? And I said, well, because I think you look at the world and you feel a moral responsibility to make it better. You say, how can you not act? How can we not take this system and try to improve it? And so you end up and you have a top-down approach to do that. That's one of the alternatives we have now, and we're seeing that in the President of the United States. This is a big election, so it's that top-down system that has, uh, I think, we've had for quite a few decades in this country versus what's next. Why isn't Obama talking about these big things and taking us into the future? His campaign is, um, is about the past. Don't go back. That's the Obama message. It's a, and it's a very powerful message, by the way. His message is, Mitt Romney, you got nothing. You're George Bush. Why do you want to go back to the same policies that got us into this mess? We may not be moving forward the way we'd like, but I'm not going to let you go back. Look at all the, all the destroyed lives, the unemployment, the retirements wiped out. Why would you want to go back to that? He's not exactly campaigning on the Obama agenda. Right? When he got elected, what were his big accomplishments? A stimulus and a health care package huge expansions of government. Not even Barack Obama's running on the Barack Obama agenda. The irony of all of this is that Barack Obama is running on Bill Clinton's agenda. The best moment of this campaign for Barack Obama was when Bill Clinton got up at the Democratic Convention and reminded everyone of, well, there, big government is over campaigning for the guy who just said the era of big government being over was over. And that's, uh, 
That's Obama looking back. Strategically, he can't run on his agenda. He has moved left of Clinton. And this is not my opinion. Take a public opinion survey, ask people if Bill Clinton is a slightly left of center president, they'll say yes. Ask people if Barack Obama is slightly to the left of Bill Clinton, they'll say yes. As a matter of fact, the proof is that's why Clinton is helpful to Bill Clinton. Uh, Clinton is helpful to Barack Obama. He gives him something he does not have. He pulls him back to that new Democrat center. When you can't run on the future, when you can't offer uh, uh, a path ahead, what do you do in politics? And I think that's true about the president's campaign. He's certainly not saying what he's going to do the next four years. There's a certain poverty, I think, to the Obama campaign, which is sad considering this was the guy who was, yes, we can, we're the change we've been waiting for, a tremendously inspirational uh, candidate. Barack Obama is the Secretariat of Hope and Vision four years ago. That guy's gone away. But instead of, 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 it seems to be that the best message he's got looking forward is, I've done the best that I can. Let's see if it works. What do you do if you're in that situation? Well, one is a, pin your opponent to the past, make it a, a, a race between the present and the past. The other thing you do is you polarize the electorate. If you feel you can't win the middle because you've moved too far left, you try to polarize the electorate along every conceivable axis until there's no middle left. You shrink the middle. And I think that's one of the strategies we're seeing the Obama campaign do. This is rich against poor class, men against women. I didn't know we Republicans had declared war on women, but apparently we have. It's uh, employer against employee. Hispanics against Anglos. You polarize along every conceivable axis. By the way, this is not unlike the strategy George Bush employed in his reelection campaign. It can also be very effective. It also leaves, you know, you may also burn the village to save the village if you win. So that's one campaign. It's very small, it's very tactical. It's not big, it's not about a future because there's no story, he has no narrative about what's going to make the future better. He's given it his best shot and it's done. That leaves a tremendous opportunity for an opponent. If your campaign is anchored in the present and saying don't go back, that leaves one big base open in this country that is looking for this. When I met Mitt Romney years ago, I thought he was that guy. I thought he was that transformational force that anything he touches gets better. And there is that Mitt Romney. I've met that guy. He is the guy who transformed the Olympics when the country was, you know, right after 9-11 in Washington, we all had gas masks and duct tape and all of that. He is the guy who not only transformed business, uh, the investment business, but in transforming the investment business, I was a great David Brooks piece uh, from a few months ago about the renewal of the American economies in the 80s and 90s, and how the uh, uh, investment business 
re-energize and transform the American old and old moribund economy. That's I've met that Mitt Romney. The other Mitt Romney is a very cautious guy. Um, he's a funny guy. First time I ever met him was in his kitchen, um, and uh, Alex, good to meet you, Mitt Romney. I'd like you to meet my wife Ann. I'd like you to meet my other wife Beth. <laughs> Mormon humor, I, I think. Uh, delightful guy. But I think two things important to know. One is we all know the story. 1968, his father, a front runner for the Republican presidential nomination, stepped on a banana peel called Vietnam, and that was the end of the campaign. I, if you haven't seen that piece of tape, it is worth looking at. Go to YouTube. It's innocuous. It is no more dangerous than many of these small gaffes these candidates make today. I mean, it's not a big deal. Look, like a lot of Americans, I, uh, you know, I bought the party line from the generals about Vietnam, but hey, I was brainwashed. I mean, he didn't really meant mean he got the electro shock, it was obvious. Candidacy was dead in a couple of days. One of the first victims of the media gotcha. I think that was Mitt Romney's first campaign. It was a defining moment for him. We have a very cautious man. True story. Um, Mitt Romney left Bain Consulting to start Bain Capital, raised $30 million. It has been published in print that uh, he had a year to invest that money. I mean, you can't have that kind of money lying around. It's not pocket change. It goes back. Somebody's got to put it to work. When did he pull the trigger on his first deal? The last day. One of the things about making a lot of money, Bain Capital is very successful, is, is it's not that they take smarter risk than other people. No, they reduce risk. That's why they bat 70%, you know, 700 here. They bat 70% of the things they do are successful. Very careful and conservative man. So we have these two candidates. Here we are looking for Moses. By the way, what is the job of the President of the United States? What is the job these two guys are seeking? I'll offer you my view. Who are our great presidents, great modern presidents? FDR. FDR, Reagan. Clinton. If you ask the American people, they'll add another two to that list. They'll add, uh, it'll be Kennedy, and they'll add Bill Clinton. What do they all have in common? At a moment when the world seemed to be out of control, they were pointing ahead. They were, they were that next bell curve. They were going up. They were ascendant. They were optimistic. FDR, the New Deal, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Remember? Bank failures, 20% unemployment. He was looking ahead. 
John F. Kennedy, Sputnik, the Soviets are going to dominate the world. We know the future will not belong to us, it'll belong to someone else. Uh uh, new frontier, we're going to go to the moon in 10 years. Why? Because we feel like it. And because we can do these things, big things. Ronald Reagan, we have a rendezvous with destiny. No, those guys are going to end up on the ash heap of history. We're Americans, we can do anything. Bill Clinton, when we were lost in a kind of a moral abyss wandering around, we were lost in our abundance as a society. The me generation. Bill Clinton comes and don't stop thinking about tomorrow. <laughs> Who was he? The boy from Hope, right? They're all the same guy. The job of a president is to lead you to the promised land. He's the only guy. He's the CEO of the country. What's a CEO's job? Doesn't have a manual, doesn't have a checklist. The CEO, his job is to grab his company and says, you know, this is who we are going to be. This is what we're going to do. Follow me. We're going to go over here. That's what a president does. And that's what we're looking for now. And I think because for political purposes, because Obama's big vision which is more of a European-style government, a command government, because he's tested it and it just hasn't produced the results I think he'd hoped. He's not running on his vision. And I think because Romney's a cautious man. And Republicans, our vision has not evolved. We haven't had the next generation of leadership come to us yet. We haven't had the Democrats at least got the new Democrat. They got what's next. We haven't had that yet. We're still, nothing new grew under the shade of the big bush tree. Well, now that's gone and we're seeing some new leadership out there. The Marco Rubios, the Bobby Jindals, the Jeb Bushes. But the fruit's not ripe yet. We haven't had the emergence of the bottom-up Republican, the organic Republican, the, the Republican who wants to <clears throat> governed from the bottom up. So that's a little bit of where we are and why I think our politics has gotten so small this time. It's a big election, but it seems to be inhabited with small campaigns. I think the good news is that in time, you know, this is still a dynamic, ugly, messy system but it's hugely creative and it produces all kinds of miraculous things. So I, I remain an optimist about this, no matter the results of this particular time. Do you guys want to talk questions or? Let me ask a couple first sure. and then we'll open it up to the, uh, to the audience. My sense of what you're saying is that it won't be Barack Obama who won this election, it will be Mitt Romney who lost it. I think the opportunity is there, if that I mean, really. Uh, I think the Obama people have run a very smart campaign. Um, you know, they have gone after these 12 swing states and have been sitting on them. When you look at the election now, Mitt Romney's tied nationally and behind in the states where he's been campaigning. This may recommend a change in strategy. <laughs> we, Maybe we should, the Romney campaign should start running TV spots in California and Texas and quit running them in Ohio. 
Um, but yes, I think the uh, when you've got a president, a stagnant economy like you have, when uh, when the president can't really run on his own agenda. I mean, there is a feeling in the Republican Party that if we can't win this election, then something is wrong with us. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons Republicans are punishing Mitt Romney. We punish people sometimes not because of their failures, but because of our own. His disappointment is also ours. Republicans have not moved forward on the next generation of leadership. And we fault him for not finding the answer that we don't have. What will happen, I hope, after this election, if, if, if we don't make it as Republicans here, and even if we do, um, what I hope will happen is this will be a nice re-examination of what it means to be a Republican and how to, how to make the tent bigger, not by compromising our principles, your principles should be ever fresh and eternal. But how do you make those principles work in a new world? We should be consistent with them. I mean, freedom seems to be advancing all over the world. Freedom seems to be advancing in our economy. Freedom seems to be advancing in the economic models that are working. We should be able, if we, if we can't make the case that we're what's next, we don't deserve to win. Alex, one of the things that is seems to be the case as far as the Republican Party is concerned is that the, the Tea Party faction of it um, really captured the, the, the rest of the party and forced it farther to the right than the party needs to be in order to be able to be a mainstream, broad-gauge political party in this country. If, hypothetically, Mitt Romney loses, how do you see that kind of, you know, there, some people are predicting a titanic bloodbath struggle with lots of finger pointing and blaming uh, that will not necessarily lead to a more um, broad gauge Republican Party but will be the capture probably of the far right and if the Mark you know Ryan will be the, the the standard bearer who will embody the Republican Party uh, leadership if that happens where do you think the Republican Party goes if I had to come up with a slogan for the next Republican Party, it would be freedom nationally, values locally. If we really believe in you, in people, and not in dictating your life from above, if we believe life is too complex for three smart guys in Washington to understand, you know, can't tell how clouds are gonna move, Laws of physics won't help us there. Economies are incredibly complex, billions of subtle interactions. Really? We're that arrogant? We think we can control those things with a, with a factory approach? If we think that's, that's our view of the world, we can't cheat and say, hey, when it comes to social issues, though, that's right. We can't cut across the track. Big government's not a good thing just when we're running it. So I think the next generation of Republican is going to say freedom nationally values locally. The Tea Party is an interesting phenomenon. I spent some time looking at it, and it's not what a lot of people think. A lot of people think the Tea Party is the evangelical wing of the Republican Party. 
cranky, pessimistic, old. No, that's me. <laughs> uh, the Tea Party are a bunch of people who are primarily concerned about economics, who think we can't spend more than we take in, who see themselves and their kids obligated for debts they fear they can't pay, and who think they're losing control of something. Uh, tea parties are like, you know, retired and semi-retired Republicans on a fixed income in Florida. That's who those guys are. And I'll tell you when I saw them. Remember when the health care bill passed? The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare? We were doing focus groups around the country that weekend uh, for some corporate clients. And remember all that summer everybody had been just madder than hell. I mean, everybody wanted some kind of health care reform, right? We want health care to cost less. Some people wanted this, some people wanted that. But then there's this 2,000-page bill all of a sudden, and it's going to cost a trillion dollars, but it's going to save money. They're yanking out 200 pages here, putting in 300 pages there. We have to pass it to find out what's, what, what's that. And people said, whoa, 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 slow down. It wasn't about health care anymore. It was about control. Slow down. What is this? You can't do this. You know, you guys are not that good at fixing things to start with. And the heat had built up all summer. And then for a year. And then finally, that slow down message, the president and the Democrats in Congress, who at that point controlled everything, right? The House, the Senate, and the White House said, sit down, people. We, we've got it. We know what we're doing here. And they passed that thing. And all that anger we'd seen built up during that time went away that day. And what we saw in those focus groups was a was resolved. How many of you here are know anybody who has kids? Oh. Let's see. Oh, very good. <laughs> Audience participation test. You know what happens when you tell your kid, don't do that, don't do that, you better not do that. They, of course, do it anyway. What do you do as a parent? No point yelling at you. It's time for consequences. That's what the Tea Party is. Reexerting control over a government that they think has distanced itself from them. How do you see this playing out in terms of the future of the Republican Party, though? I mean, the that there is, you know, there is definitely going to be a group in the Republican Party that is going to say the reason we lost is because Mitt Romney was not conservative enough, and there are other kinds of Republicans who would view the Jeb Bush future as the right one and not the Ryan one. Unless we come up with that new generation of leadership, we will have that battle. But if you want to write a good movie, you need a leading man or a leading woman. And the way you resolve problems like that is somebody comes along and turns everybody forward and says, follow me. Look at Marco Rubio and the speech he gave at the convention. You know, how do you solve the immigration problem? How do you solve the Tea Party problem? Well, you can't litigate those things when more, you know, more for me means less for you. You're wrong, I'm right. No, we're all going to go over here and there's a better place. Another old story, that's why, let's get back to the president's job. 
the promised land. Hey, we're going to stay here in the desert and we're going to litigate this problem. No, we're not. We're going to go to a better place. Abundance. That's how you resolve the Tea Party problem. You need real leaders to take a country forward. And uh, can we do that? Do we have those in the next lap? I think we do. I think we have, uh, you know, Susanna Martinez. I think we have Kelly Ayotts. I think we have optimistic, sunshine conservatives who understand that, look, it's, it's not it's not sufficient just to be morally right. You have to have something that works better and helps more people. And there is a generation of, of Republicans out there who believe that, you know, this whole freedom thing you got in this country is a pretty powerful and progressive thing and a pretty good force for good. And somehow we ought to, we ought to celebrate it and elevate it and use it to create more prosperity and for everybody. Let me, let me open the uh, questioning to students first. Uh, if you're a, a Kennedy School student and you want to ask a question, please raise your hand, yeah. Hi, uh, hey. I think this was fantastic. Um, I do want to raise an issue with this sort of promised land notion. So I would offer an alternative vision of where it's not just a free willing freedom thing, it's we're a community. And perhaps the former presidents have been selling us a false bill of goods by saying, we'll take you to the promised land where it'll be abundance. Instead of saying, you know what, we're here, and it's time for everybody to work on making this better. And that's, I think, very much reflected in the Obama platform of fair shot, fair share, um, which is not something I'm hearing from the other candidates, um, the other candidate, um, and sort of this like, this is where we are, and it's going to take all of us to make this better. I think as we go forward, I think an interesting way to look at it, and I think that is where the debate is today. Um, I think the Obama message is really that the biggest problem we have is maldistribution, that if we all if we redistribute things a little better, the middle class will grow and that'll drive growth. I'm not sure that that is their thinking in terms of economics, but I know it's a useful political device. Uh, I think they glued that on when they really, when they realized they didn't have anything to take them forward. They had an enemy, they had a, a good battle, they had survey tested campaign that worked. Um, but I don't think the difference, you know, one of the, th the things that Republicans suffer from, I think you're right about, is that so far we have, we have communicated that we are for this atomized society that's dog-eat-dog -dog and, you know, you're on your own and um, we don't belong to anything. And I don't think that's true. I think the difference that we, we should do a better job in articulating is do we trust ourselves is, is to organize ourselves and, and attack problems in any other way than top down from government? Is government something only you can hire that you can only hire people to do for you? You know 
create another factory, crank out some policy, attack some problems. I would submit that one of the things Republicans need to do is explain that no government's a much broader thing than that. We govern our lives in a lot of different ways. You know, hiring social mercenaries to attack our problems is really kind of a cold thing. We actually govern our lives and families and businesses and schools. There are so many other institu institutions which we actually use to solve problems. And that's, that's community. We think those things should be organic. We think those, that, that community building should be organic and bottom up and done more naturally than the three smart guys in Washington saying, this is how you should do it. The Irish potato famine is one reason. Anybody here ever eaten a potato? Just check it. There aren't a lot of potatoes. There's one. Because every potato is a clone, right? You take the eyes and you clone out the potatoes. Well, that was working really well until the potato got sick. And then what happened? Well, the potato died, and they had no food in Ireland. Great for the United States, everybody came over here. The point is, an old industrial way of building those communities, of organizing those communities, that might have been fine in a very simple world, you know, where you want the world to be like the Chinese army or the Catholic Church, and you have very simple goals but you're not looking for creativity or spontaneity. How do you build that community in a different way? Well, look around us. We're seeing that happen all over our economy. I think that's the, the things we should be talking about as Republicans and as Democrats. Students, yes. Hi. Uh, thank you again for coming here. So the question I have is going off of what you were saying before about how Democrats govern from a top-down approach, and Republicans are trying to build the sense of community-level responsibility and moving up, but I'm wondering how Republican strategy is going to go forward when now, and I'm not saying this is true, but the perception is that economically it's seen as a top-down approach. There's a sense of trickle-down economics. I know it's been used a lot. And, and how do Republicans um, want to approach and counter that and, and show what you're saying? building from the bottom up? Well, let's see. We could take away that 47% right to vote. No, that won't work. Um, right now, the debate is between trickle-down government and trickle-down capitalism. And neither of them, I think, are very nourishing. You know, if you're out there, you, you just don't feel the love from either of those things that it ever is going to get down to you. Um, how, do we, how do we turn that around? I don't think we're that far from it, you know? I'll tell you who I thought was that guy. Uh, I thought Barack Obama was that guy. He came along and said, we are the change we've been waiting for. He said, yes, we can. Wow, this guy gets it. Barack Obama walked into North Carolina last election, and he had a camp. He hadn't campaigned there, no organization. He walked in, found a campaign, found an organization. It had self-organized. 
for him. This is who this guy is. He's what's next. Great. Nah, not so much. As soon as he was elected, what happens? Tested by a crisis, he got the smartest, best experts around him, and they all told him, this is what you do, and he did it. But it turned out to be very old, classic, left-of-center, liberal democratic thinking. There really wasn't anything new there. There certainly wasn't anything bottom-up. And again, understand the case for it, uh, but has he done anything new? Well, no, he's pretty much... The one area, I think, where he has surprised, and the one area where he has found common ground with some Republicans, is education. Why? Because there he is bottom-up. There he has moved power out of, from the top down to the bottom, out of Washington. And in that one area, I see promise. I'm not sure I answered your question, but try it. So, yes. Uh, I have a question on the Republican Party. First, do, does the Republican Party need to be competitive in the Northeast to be viable? I mean, at the House and Senate levels, or the presidential level, and what do you think it will take to rebuild the party in the Northeast? Or something like Scott Brown winning re-election, will that inspire this guy we have running in the 6th District here in Massachusetts who might win? Will that inspire, you know, could that help rebuild the party in this Yes, we need to be competitive. If we keep writing off parts of the country, Hispanics, women, left-handers, you know, eventually you run out of voters. So that would not be a good thing to do. There are two ways to try to reach across the middle. One way is you become the other guy. Usually that only works for a limited amount of time, if it works at all, because the other guy is usually a better other guy than you are. And you know, there's a limited appetite for light beer when you can get the real thing. There's another way to reach across the middle. The middle is, you know, both ends are pessimistic, the middle is optimistic. Um, both ends think the world is coming to an end uh, and morally wrong. The middle of the electorate want stuff that works. One of the things Republicans need to do to win the middle, to win in the Northeast, is to say, hey, we've got a better theory of the case. Our stuff is going to work better. Here's why. Here's what I would do if I were Mitt Romney and I were making a commercial today. I would say, in, to run in the Northeast, I would say, hey, we all want to grow the economy, right? Right. How do we do it? we got two very different theories. Barack Obama wants to take money from your pocket, take it to Washington. He wants to grow the economy top-down, politically and artificially, from Washington. Who tried that? Sixteen trillion dollars worth. How's it going? That's the old way. Hey, maybe there's a better way to grow the economy. Maybe there's a new way. Something Washington hasn't tried, for at least for the last 30 years. What if we, instead of taking money from your pocket, sending it there, what if we take money from there, taxes and spending, and bring them back here? What if we grow the economy from your pocket? What if we grow the economy bottom-up naturally and organically? Ooh, naturally and organically? What does that mean? That sounds different. That doesn't sound like a stiff old white guy Republican in a suit. 
That doesn't sound like that rich elitist Republican. What if we grow the economy naturally and organically, bottom up? What if we grow the economy from where you shop, where you invest, where you live? Let's try that. That's new. That's different. They have faith in the old thing and other people. I have faith in you. That, I think, is how you attack. And again, two different theories of the case. Now there's a certain, I see some head shaking over here. The 16 billion, I'm going to... Come on, bring here. it out, bring it on, that's good. <laughs> Politics is the business, one of the things about it, it is the business of simplification, right? It's the business of reduction. It's finding the metaphor or moment that's bigger than the metaphor or moment itself. It's finding a big truth and trying to make it digestible. And so, um, but we are at that point in history where the world is changing and we are seeing the way things are organized is changing. And I think that's the race for the future. Who's going to get to what's next first? Students first, yes. I'm sorry, what did you say? Couldn't understand. James. Sorry, I'm a student here at Danny School from New Mexico. I going to ask you about the future of um, Hispanic politicians. I think we're in a very interesting time where you see the Susana Martinez's emerging Republican Party and the Marco Rubio's, but then you also have the other folks that are on, on the Democratic side. What, what do you see as a vision for that? Electric also the I think one of the worst things that's happened in the Republican Party is the anger, the division of us and them. I carry my passport with me at all times, just in case everybody, you know, anybody wants to deport media guys or something. It, it's not a Republican Party that uh, that is very inviting. And as somebody, you know, my family came here with 11 bucks and a suitcase and two kids, and uh, so, you know, I can't be a pull up the ladder, I'm a board guy. But that's really not whom Republicans, I think, are. We were just talking before about how do you solve problems like immigration, a big issue. And I think as long as the boat's dead in the water, it doesn't bring out the best in us. When the boat's dead in the water, you know, I've got to take from you, you've got to take from me. But if you can get the boat going to the promised land, if you can get the boat going to a better place, if you get the country growing and moving, then all of a sudden everybody starts working together. You start becoming that community. You begin to have a larger purpose. And then you can begin to resolve issues like that. These problems haven't been problems when the country's been going to a better place. And I think we have a generation of leaders that understand that coming up. Uh, <coughs> when you have those big optimistic leaders, the crankiness in our party, you know, we can kind of, I mean, it'll always be there. The crankiness and the pessimism, and they're in both parties there are people that just don't like some other people. But we can always seem to be able to tamp that down when you have a Kennedy, when you have an FDR, when you have a Reagan, when you have that visionary leader. And that, to me, is the biggest thing we're missing. Student, yes. Uh, so we talked about sort of the two competing visions of government. Um, what about the fact that if I've been elected with this vision and you've been elected with that vision, 
um, and the American people kind of expect to put us together and how are we going to work together. You talked a lot about your sort of focus yeah. on bipartisanship. And there's historically there's always been a tension between maybe I should just wait it out for you to lose the next election cycle um, so that then I can get my way and post on everybody and vice versa. And I think in the last, especially the last couple of years, that tension coming in is doing doing quite a good job of blocking that tension between, you know, the politics and actually getting on with the business of covering. Do you have any sort of thoughts on moving forward how we might be able to get Lots. Okay. <laughs> Four or five hours. No. The, um, boy, that's, you know, I, if I get one question more than anything else, don't these guys get it? Don't they know we're, we're at this critical moment, a moment of danger? Don't they know they ought to get together and fix this stuff? And one of the things I unfortunately <laughs> report, at least from my perspective, is that, yeah, they do get it. They know we're at a critical moment. That's why they don't work together. If you're at the edge of a precipice and one step off, that's it, you're done. And the other side is proposing 10 steps off the precipice and you agree to compromise. Well, we'll only take three. Oh, compromise. Well, that won't help. Both sides right now think they're at the edge of a precipice. Both sides think this, and they see, in a way we are, we're picking which road we're going to take. And that's one reason I think compromise is so difficult. Another reason is this stuff. We are now connected 24-7 all the time, everywhere. These guys in Washington, these women in Washington, they don't have a moment where they're not wearing their jersey. The football game never stops. They're always playing. And that's different. But here's the good news. Conflict ain't all bad. It's not all bad at all. You know, there's a reason that, you know, Harvard and Yale, they, they you know, you have basketball teams. They don't meet at center court and say, hey, you know, we have a lot in common. Ball's round, you have a snazzy uniform, we have a snazzy uniform, this is great, let's work this out. No, you play, somebody wins, somebody loses, life moves forward. For example, something most people here, again, another audience in Boston, sex. Anybody here ever heard of this? <laughs> Just checking. Why are there two? Why do we have two? It's messy, it's conflictive, courting, dressing up, emotional violence. Why do we do this? There's got to be a better way. What if we had a single-payer sexual system? <laughs> we have no conflict, just kind of move forward. Well, we actually do. It's called the amoeba. That's as far as it goes. It turns out that this horribly conflictive sex thing that we have is hugely dynamic, is hugely creative. Through all this violence, you know, some species fail, others succeed, all this conflict, guess what happens? One thing meets another thing and boom, something new happens, life moves forward, it's called evolution. All this horrible pain we have because of this conflict, another way to look at it is just it's dynamism. It's what's it creates great failure and it creates tremendous success. Considering how fast the world is moving, how fast things are changing, maybe it's not so bad to have what is still a fairly dynamic system. I think one real question is, is the reason Washington paralyzed? Because they're doing stuff they shouldn't be doing anymore. 
Nobody can make the factory work. Maybe you don't need the factory. Maybe you need something else. Questions? Yeah, John. Um, you haven't really addressed in income inequality, but as you undoubtedly know, in the U.S., that uh, it's gone more and more and more into just a very few people getting a lot of money, far more than in any of the Western European countries. It's sort of China and Russia are at the other end of the scale, and maybe France in 1789, which is an interesting thing to think about. But do you think there's any uh, way that the Republican uh, uh, poopas would think that maybe there is something wrong with this, that we're we used to get this much of the money, and now we're getting this much of the money. I don't mean all Republicans. Well, I'll submit a yes, and I think there's a different explanation for that from our point of view that also I don't think we as Republicans make very well. Um, one thing I learned over the years, Republicans aren't a whole lot different than Democrats. We may have different answers to different things, but we kind of all want the same things. Um, and you want people to have a good life. And when you live in a place where everybody has a good life, then your life is better. That's a good thing. Income inequality. I have no problem with income inequality on its, on, on its own. None. As long as there's a ladder and people can move up it, then I want the ladder to get taller. I want the ladder to get higher. I want more people to reach higher and, and, and attain more. Does that mean there'll be more income inequality? Yes. My question is, why has there have been decreased mobility here in the United States. Now, it's still a tremendously dynamic system. I mean, we talk about the bottom quintile as if, you know, they're there for life. They're not. Um, I cannot remember the, the data, but it's something, what, like 60% of them move out in five years? Somebody here would know, because you guys are smart and study this stuff, and I don't. But it's still a tremendously dynamic system. Not the same as it used to be. Why? I'll offer you that the, that the solution is part of the problem, and that's government. When you create a government-centered society, as Mitt Romney might say, where you start painting all kinds of lines on the road and rules and all of that, who's going to win that rig game? The guys with the money. They're going to make more money. The guys with the lawyers. The guys with the lobbyists. Guess where the rich guys go? They go where the money is. They go where the power is. You're advantaging them the more complicated you make the government game. I think in many ways that rigidity that we have created, yeah, it produces more cement in society, produces a less mobile society, and, and a less productive society. All of a sudden, you know, one of the problems we have with the tax code is that it incentivizes people to win by loophole, not by productivity. So how do we create a more dynamic society? There's a, I was just reading, as a matter of fact, you've got an economist here, I can't remember his name. Um, anyway, how to create a more prosperous society and have it atta uh, attainable by everyone. I think that problem precedes mobility, uh, proceeds income inequality. Yes. Um, I have a question. Like when you talk about this candidate who's like this person who's going to take us to a greater, better place, right? So, um, but you don't want a strong centralized government. 
because of all the reasons that you said. But if you put somebody in the White House who's this charismatic great man in history, then isn't he going to want more power? Well, it depends on your theory of governing. Are you a plant manager? Are you running the U.S. Army? Very simple things you people are going to do out there. You know, kill people, blow things up. That's your job. If you see yourself, or do you see yourself as Hayek did, your job as a leader is to be a gardener. You cultivate. You inspire. You put lines on the side of the road so people know what direction to go, but you don't make those lines so thick that nobody can get through. There's a balance. There's a balance. We've had good leaders from both parties, I think, who, uh, who understood that. You know, Reagan.